but as long as you're consistent with the training, I think three, let's say 12 to 16 week training block that is more consistent than having four weeks in there where you do some massive Saturday swim, bike, run, brick, and have to take a bunch of days off after that. You know, you might have the same volume, but I don't think the gain you're getting is the same. That triathlon show, 140. Everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Carson Christen on the Trisado way of triathlon training. So, Carson was recommended when I recently asked on uh, the Scientific Triathlon Facebook page for people to give me some suggestions and some recommendations for guests to interview. He was recommended and I reached out and uh, it uh, seemed that he would be a great guest to talk about uh, all sorts of triathlon things. But we settled on the topic of really trying to describe what the Tri-Sado way of triathlon training is. And Tri-Sado, for those of you not familiar, is one of the largest and most well-known and most successful triathlon coaching businesses around. Brett Sutton is the founder He's the coach of Daniel Arif. He was Chrissy Wellington's coach back in the day. And there are a whole lot of other very successful, both professional and age group athletes that have been coached by Brett or the other Trisado coaches that have gone through that Trisado system. Carson is a sports scientist by background and education, and he has now been a professional endurance coach for five years. He uh, has a master's degree in sports physiology and he has coached professional triathlon victories and also national champion and Olympic cyclists coming from a cycling background. He is from the United States but is now based in Germany and as you understand he is a Trisado coach himself. Big thank you to our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Precision Hydration and right now we are in August, or it might be the day before August. I don't quite remember off the top of my head. But in any case, within August, Precision Hydration is running a special promo for that Triathlon Show listeners. You can get 20% off your order using the promo code TTS20. That's TTS20. And that's valid in August only. So if you have in the past, you have tried it out you have gotten the free first box that uh, is the usual promo that precision hydration runs then this is a great opportunity to uh, stock up on ph product really as much as you will need for a long time so uh, definitely go and take that opportunity right away so that you don't miss it because it is a limited time offer so you can do that on precisionhydration.com or click the link right in the episode description and big thanks to Roka. By the time you hear this episode, even though I don't know if it's August or July, I know for sure that I will be in Italy. I'll be training with some pretty fast guys up in the Italian mountains, quite close to Lake Garda. So between the Lake Garda and where the Alps, the foothills of the Alps. And it will be, shall we say, a friendly but competitive setting. And on the swim and the bike especially, I rely on Roka's products to give me a little bit of an extra edge, an extra boost, 
on the swim in particular i use the maverick x wetsuit which to me is just the rolls royce of wetsuits i've used a lot of wetsuits in my day and uh, i've never experienced anything like the maverick x it's mind-blowingly fast and uh, really really flexible you have full shoulder mobility so i just love that it's my favorite favorite triathlon products of all the products i use probably maybe after my power meters uh, but then on the bike i will be using my gen 2 elite tri suit again this is a super fast one as soon as i started using it i noticed an increase in speed on the bike just because it's so aerodynamic and if you know anything about aerodynamics you will know that clothing has a big impact on how aerodynamic you are and roca has really gone to the nth degree to make sure that their tri suits are the fastest the most aerodynamic tri suits out there so check that out as well of course you can find other products like uh, other swim gear swim skins buoyancy shorts sunglasses goggles all sorts of things on roca.com and you can get 20% off your entire order when you use the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. Alright, so my interview with Carson ran pretty long because it was just very interesting and I think all of it is highly relevant and highly useful for you. But I don't want to waste your time, so let's dive right in. So Carson, welcome to That Triathlon Show. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me on, Mikko. I'm very excited to be here. It will be brilliant. Uh, we were just talking a bit off air about uh, the fact that uh, Trisoto, uh, for whom you are coaching, is a big and well-known entity in the triathlon world. But uh, I've never had anybody, any coach from that uh, from that school of uh, coaching school, basically, on the podcast before. So it will be interesting to dive into the way that you do triathlon training and how you think about that. So can you just start by giving us a 10,000 foot overview of uh, what it looks like? Yeah, well, I'll try not to diverge all the little secrets that, that we that we keep near to our chest. But uh, yeah, I suppose here we go. No, I'm just kidding. There's there's no secrets. And I think that's the beauty of the tricetto method is, um, you know, so many, I'm sure of the listeners and everybody on the internet, they all read the, the blog posts and everything that Brett Sutton writes. And, and, you know, I think it's just, it's just simple, no fluff, hard work, you know, that I think, um, really produces, you know, the champions for 40 years, you know, I just, things I pull from Tricetto have been tried and tested for years, never, you know, changed when needed. Um, but it just continuously works. And so, you know, just starting from the 10,000 foot view, it, it just comes down to consistency, especially in the sport of triathlon. Um, I think, you know, it's, it, it's just day after day, the hard work gets put in. Um, and, you know, when, when it comes to the prescribing of, of workouts versus group versus solo, um, you know, structured stuff. It, it, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're Danny Reef, Chrissy Wellington, um, you know, down to an amateur age group athlete that, you know, might be at a camp with, uh, with Tricetto. Um, you know, it just, we, we kind of stem all of our training that you need to train for triathlon and not swim, bike and run. Those three components are all important and they make up the sport, but it is one sport. And I think that is the problem that, you know, kind of comes around today is people train the bike 
and then they train the, the run and then they train the swim, you know, sometimes last, you know, not even in the right order. Um, and, and so we, we definitely are a very swim dominated group, I would say, um, which, you know, I think is the Achilles heel of the majority of triathletes in the world. Um, and, you know, we really push that the swim drives the rest of the day from sprint triathlon all the way up to um, full distance Ironman uh, racing. Um, you know, and just to, I'd say the top, you know, three or five things that that are important when it comes to the swim that I think aren't, you know, put out there in the world is it, it doesn't come down to any drill or technique or certain yardage, um, you know, per week that, you know, I think the top three things that I learned the best when it comes to swimming, um, is, you know, you have to go to the pool first and foremost, you have to go to the pool. Number two, you have to get in the pool. And number three, you have to enjoy what you're doing and you just have to find a way to enjoy swimming. Um, you know, so many master's groups, you know, I've, I've seen it, you know, having been a competitive swimmer for 20 plus years through university, everybody loves to go to the pool deck. You stand around for 10 or 15 minutes, um, you know, warming up your arms, you know, talking about your day and then you hop in the pool, uh, you know, 500 meter warm up, um, you know, and then, it, then comes the main set 10 by 100s best effort, you, you know, with let's say 20 or 30 seconds rest. After that, you do maybe some drills or kicking, a little cool down, and there you have your hour. You have your hour swim, and you go back and look at what you did, or you repeat that weekly. You go to the the swim portion of the triathlon, and you know you don't do any you don't do any better. Um, and you go back and you just think about it. You know, think about that training session. You did maybe one thousand meters of good hard work. And, you know, I think that's, that's the Achilles heel right there. People just, you're, they're not swimming enough for what they need to be. Um, you know, and obviously, all oh, you know, the podcast, you could do a whole hour on swimming. So I won't try to, you know, touch base on everything, but really what it comes down to at Triceto is we, yeah, you, you know, we swim more, we swim more often and we, we swim quite a bit of overall volume and we find that it works for us. And, and would you say that because you, you mentioned before that uh, it's not a certain yardage per week, but it's really comes down to the overall volume of that quality of those main sets. And that's where age groupers right. go wrong. Yes, I, I think so. You know, the good, you know, good strokes count. Only good scro- strokes matter per se. You know, when it comes to uh, sprint distance, you want to be able to do 700 to 1,000 you know, good strokes. If you're taking one meter per, you know, your one stroke per meter, which most of us are not, um, all the way up to Ironman, let's say 4,000 good strokes over the course of an hour, you, you need to be doing that. Um, and so that's what we try to have our athletes do. And, you know, a lot of the feedback I think in the global triathlon community is, you, you know, Brett Sutton, you know, you look at some of Daniela Reef's Instagram posts or whatever online where she does a 6,000 meter set. And, and I mean, it's true, you know, and, you know, but that's Daniela Reef, you know, an age grouper is not necessarily doing that kind of distance, but 
you know, you get into the pool and you just swim. Bella Bayless, uh, I believe 16 time Ironman winner um, from, from Brett's squad and also a coach. She, at one point when she was living in the UK with her husband, Stephen, uh, I believe they had three days a week to swim. And, you know, she was racing full-time professional. And so for three days a week, she could swim. She got in for one hour and swam as swam three one hour sessions, pretty much as hard as she could, you know, let's say it was four by one thousands or 60 meters or 60 minutes straight swim or 40 by one hundreds, you know, some of those things that, you know, some of those classic workouts that people think of, you know, triceto. Um, and you know, she could move her swim down from, from say, I think it was in the 65 minute range, hour and five or something down to the low fifties over the course of her career. And, you know, there was, she didn't do any drill work. She didn't do any kicking because she didn't have the time. She put in what was needed. She put her pull buoy in, her paddles on and just swam, you know, maybe it was 12,000 meters a week, but all quote unquote, good, good strokes. Mm. I can, I can definitely resonate with, with that. And, and also let's not forget the, the great cross training benefits that swimming can give. And it's very forgiving on the body in that you, uh, you, you're not as likely to have injuries as for example, by doing a lot of running. So uh, and swimming Absolutely. definitely helps with, for the run and the bike as well. Yes. And that's the other reason we use it for that point alone. Um, and, and we find that, you know, the whole point of the swim is to get out and get onto the bike. Um, and the, you know, the main thing is to come out of that swim and just be ready to go. Um, you know, you go to some of these races, you go to Kona and you watch some of these age groupers come out of the water. And for the first 50 kilometers on the bike, they're, they're zigzagging across the road. You know, their heart rate is 180 because, you know, and, you know, and then that, you know, so it takes them, you know, an hour and a half for an hour to, to settle down on the bike, so to speak. Um, but then, you know, that even, we find that that plays out on the, on the run later. Um, you know, so many athletes, they think, oh, I failed on my marathon. Well, I need to run more mileage. I need to get more mileage and, you know, run faster, run harder. Um, but I think it it comes down, you know, to their body was so tired and not ready for the swim amount that that's what ruined their whole day or, you know, a, a possible reason for that. Yeah, and and let's uh, we're we're in the obviously ten thousand foot overview, but one more point that speaking about Kona, for example, or other big Ironmans, like if you come out and you have hundreds or even thousands of athletes ahead of you after the swim, then the amount of searching you have to do, no matter how good a biker you are, you're going to waste a ton of unnecessary energy doing all those searches to stay within the rules right. of of the non non draft racing. So so that's just something that can. You can save so much by coming out like much higher up the pack. Right. And I think that's a good leeway into the 10,000 foot view of the cycling. And everybody who knows Tricetto training methods knows it's all about pushing the big gear. And, you know, you see pictures of Daniela riding on the turbo or up the bobsleigh hill in, uh, in St. Moritz pushing 40 cadence. And, and, and that's, that's kind of the other reason for it is, you know, Yeah, we are absolutely, for most of the athletes, about big gear, pushing big strength, because what we find is you're recruiting your leg 
muscles, your massive leg muscles, okay, so your quadriceps, your hamstrings, your glute muscles, the biggest muscles in the body, they recover the quickest, especially in an aerobic setting. Um, and what we notice is, you know, if you, if you can race, for example, Danny races her, her, uh, her races, I think around 76 RPMs on the bike. If you, if you were to raise her RPMs to 86 on the bike, you would probably see her heart rate, average heart rate go up about 10 beats per minute, 10 to 15 beats a minute for over the course of that race. And so then what you're looking at is, okay, well, her, her, her heart rate's 10, 15 beats higher or any athlete, you know, I don't, I don't need to talk just about Danny. Um, and so then you get to the marathon and, you know, what if your heart rate could have been 10 beats per minute lower on average before you started the run? It just gives you a bigger window to play with, you know, on the course of that run. Um, and so that's why we push it. We push using strength and getting from point A to point B the quickest and most efficient. Um, and, you know, sure, there's, there's, there's different athletes um, in the power curve. If you're Lionel Sanders or these guys, you probably can't push 70 cadence on the bike because you're need, you need to be pushing over 300 watts. Um, and again, that's another specific cycling talk that we can get into. Um, you know, coaches, Cam Watt and I come from the, from coaching professional cycling and the power curve, you know, in a one minute full gas velodrome time trial, those Chris Hoys of the sport are pushing 150, you know, cadence for a minute at a thousand Watts. You look at then the best four minute on the track, 4k guys and they're pushing 105 to 110 cadence for 500 watts you go to the 50k 40k time trial you know in the tour de france you see these guys pushing 400 watts 375 at 95 cadence so you see that power duration curve as the power drops off that cadence comes down and so for the majority of our athletes who are pushing 200 watts for an ironman you know 250 watts if you're a good age grouper why would why why do you use a hundred cadence when you could be using seventy and keep your heart rate lower? Um, you know, but ten thousand foot view, each athlete is different. Everybody will have a different cadence that they that they utilize. But that's what we try to do is is build the strength and keep the the heart rate, which is a muscle, from not having to work so much before you get to the run. And uh, so you're a sports scientist by background, am I correct? If if I remember correctly, yes. yes. So do you, can you talk a little bit about the science of of cadence there? Because there are different uh, uh, different research, different results out there about how metabolically metabolically efficient different cadences are versus how uh, mechanically efficient it is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What's your view of the uh, the state of the art as we know it right now about cadence? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just like anything science, sports science related, you know, there's one, one good document that'll say one thing. And then a week later, something else says the other. Um, but I believe if you go out there and when they were talking about amateur athletes, which I think, you know, this podcast in, in, in the big scope of things should talk about, yes. there's way more amateurs out there and that's who we're trying to help. It, you know, the most, most of our clientele are amateur athletes. Um, and so, you know, some of these older, old school kind of stood the test of time, uh, scientific articles all say that the most efficient 
cadence for for sustained riding is in like the 60 to you know 65 70 cadence range um and sure you know you have all these you have other ones that come out you know when it starts talking about leverage and stuff but yeah power is um force over time you know you can get to 250 watts riding you know a higher cadence you can get to 250 watts riding a lower cadence and it you know mechanically um again it's a lever the legs are levers and i think that's another you know another thing to throw into the pot is bike fitting and you know crank length debate which is also very big and um you know brett's also very outspoken on that and as well you know for triathletes that you know in in the world so um you know i think i think it is the case where you know you just have to look at what works for the majority of athletes and and you try it out and you know brett having coached you know, triathletes since the 80s, you know, ITU world champions, amateur world champions, you know, one of the big things he he says is, you know, he, he did all this so that, you know, especially our newer coaches today, like myself, they don't have to guess, you know, you don't have to guess at what's best because it's been shown for 20 years to be effective, um, you know, for let's say 90% of athletes, you know, the, the 10% out there, you know, Nicholas Spirig, you know, the, another one of his athletes, gold medalist um, in the Olympics um, and silver medal. Uh, she rides a higher cadence. That's that's who she is. You, you know, she still trains some of the different stuff. But, yeah, you're not going to see her pushing 60 cadence for a bike. But, again, that's W ITU racing. You know, you need to be able to accelerate like a criterium. Um, so you got to look at the scope of the sport versus you know what it is iron man let's say nine or ten hours for the best amateurs in the world uh, a 40k time trial let's say 65 minutes for amateur 55 minutes 60 minutes so you have to look at the broad scope of what it does and what it's going to do when you have to run 42,000 steps off the bike mm, okay so so it really the reasoning behind the uh, the, the the low cadence it comes down to keeping that heart rate low which uh, I imagine like a big, uh, big part of why that is considered or is helpful is that you can save a lot of, lot of energy that way. The the reason that I ask is that like some studies that I've seen, they, they talk about like with low cadence, you use up a lot of the stored glycogen in the muscles with, uh, so, so you waste the peripheral energy, energy stores, so to say, but I don't, I haven't seen really any performance studies. So it's always really difficult to infer what's, uh, what's best versus not best but intuitively like a low heart rate definitely feels more comfortable and as you say when you get out on the run you might feel a lot better if you're starting at 150 versus 160 right and yeah and it just comes down to um you know those three muscle groups in your legs sure you might let's say burn through more glycogen you know but that's why we train it you know you train the athlete to be ready for it but compared to the heart you know, I'm, I'm not going to quote anything because I don't have any numbers in front of me, nor would I, I want to believe that. But the heart is also a muscle. And, you know, in the swim, you don't necessarily have to use your legs. And, you know, but for the bike and the run, you have to. And, you know, so I think it's the, the aerobic component and the recoverability of those larger muscle groups is much, much better. You know, the, the muscle fiber type compared to the heart, you know, which is a little smaller requires, you know, you just got to use it all the, all the day long 
And so just trying to remove the necessary usage of the heart having to pump more and more and more. Mm. Okay. And anything else with the bike that we should mention here in the big picture overview or should we move on to the run? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's best again just to to you know with the heart rate thing moving to the run, and you know the run and and looking at the, the sport of triathlon, whoever slows down the least is usually the winner in in the in the sport. Um, and so you know at, at Triceto we don't we don't look at at the um, you know at those pro runners, the pro marathon runners as way as reason for our athletes to run because coming off of sitting on the bike for five or six hours swimming for at least an hour you know these and leaning forward with your your chest cavity out over the front of your 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 you know your center of gravity that's why at the end of ironmans you see people hunched over and and almost looking like hunchbacks uh you know walking or you know barely moving along the course and so we teach our athletes, the larger the athlete, the more backwards they sit. So, you know, it, you know, um, uh, a g- good example is the, uh, the residents of say India or Southeast Asia, South America, you see these, these ladies, you know, they're walking down the street with those big pots on their heads or, you know, they went to the market and they're carrying all those, all that food back on the top of their head or in bags on the street. And if you look at them from the side or you looked at them while they were walking, you, the first thing you will notice is they are leaned back. They are not leaning forward because they might have to walk five kilometers home from, from the market. Um, and so that's, that's what we try to train. We train that our body is sitting over our center of gravity and can hold us up for the duration of the marathon. Um, you know, if you, if you look at Daniela running, she she does she looks very much upright compared to some of the you know the faster pure runners of the sport but yet she she'll produce a run split that's you know very similar if not better in in some days and how do you train that is it just an awareness thing and uh, pointing it out to the athlete and having them run that way in their normal running any workout really or do you have like any specific uh, tactics for developing that yeah, really, it just comes, you know, it's that body awareness, standing up tall and, you know, looking straight ahead. So many people, when when we run and we're training, we're always looking at the ground or at our feet, um, you know, looking looking where you're going or that's just, you know, that's kind of how the, the, head, the head looks. And so, you know, looking straight forward, even maybe tilting the head a little bit up, I feel, you know, keeping the shoulders back a little bit and, and just relaxing. Um, one cue, uh, you know, that for some people is that they want to see if somebody's standing in front of you, looking at you and you're running towards them, they almost want to see the ball of your feet mm. when you're running towards, towards them. Um, and you know, not to get into the, you know, heel foot, midfoot, forefoot, um, because again, that's person dependent. Um, but yeah, it's more of just a body awareness thing, but just trying not to, to do so much of that forward lean that you see the professional runners yeah. using. And and what does the actual training then look like? What what is your main focus in as in terms of the run? Uh, very strength strength oriented, um, and and generally, you know, you might even say low volume to a certain extent. Um, 
but maybe more frequency, more consistency. You know, you hear about the the triple run days, the Kenyan run days um, that some of these, you know, athletes are doing um, and, and just strength, you know, running hills, using the treadmill a, a lot for strength training. Um, and, and then, you know, also just the, the technique under fatigue is what we call it. Um, being able to just keep running when you're tired and not necessarily, you know, worried about your pace and, and things like that, but just keeping an effort and, you know, that gets into, you know, different way, different methods of prescribing training, um, and things like that. But yeah, very strength oriented and just, you know, keeping that technique when you're tired. Speaking of prescribing training, that's an interesting blog I, I read from Brett Sutton on how he really prescribes like power numbers or or pace numbers or things like that. It's more about, you mentioned it earlier in terms of the swim, which is, uh, I think, very common practice that it's uh, it's your best effort, really. But is that something that is common across the whole Trisado uh, school of coaching and do you do that in all three disciplines that it's more about prescribing based on a liberal or athlete regulated approach or how does that work yeah you, you know definitely the tricetal methodology and the way brett you know coaches us coaches and and his athletes is is yeah don't don't be re- reliant on the numbers so to speak because again, it's your training swim, bike, run for the sport of triathlon. Um, you know, it's, it's, it was way easier for me coming from the sport of cycling where, you know, the professional team I worked for, that's all these guys are doing. Sure. They might be riding 25, 30 hour weeks, but that's all they're doing. You you know, they're not having to swim. They're not having to run on the other sides of it. And so I think that's, that's the point where the sport just has just become so numbers oriented. I'm a sports scientist. I love my numbers. But you, you also have to look at what's best, you know, for the sport. And so, you know, I, I use numbers. A lot of my athletes are very data-driven as well. You know, many amateur athletes nowadays are very analytical. You know, they're, they're in the banking industries. They're scientists. They're doctors, um, even teachers. Um, and they want to see their data. They want to see the numbers. And that's, that's great. And I feel, you know, a few of us coaches at Triceto, Joe Spindler, myself, um, I know are, are very much into the sports science and using the numbers and it's just about finding a balance. And you know, like you were saying, liberally explaining to the athletes that some days the numbers are not just, or they're just not going to be there. And so mentally you almost have to check it out, you know, especially let's, let's go back to the example of Kona where it's so warm. Um, you know, it's really hard to train in the, for that, for that race, you know, let's say back at home. Um, and you may run a three-hour marathon at every Ironman you do, you know, 4.15 per kilometer. But you get to Kona, and, and just the, the nature of that race and everything, you might run a 3.15, and that might be the best you're ever going to run. And so that's where I think the data can kill the athlete is, you know, they start seeing, oh, I'm running 4.30s, I'm running 4.45s, and they mentally check out. And so it's a, it's a real struggle slash art i feel that the athletes learn that some days you just got to go for it and not worried about you know even on the better better side of it you know what if if somebody's supposed to be you know only riding tempo 
you know, but let's say they just feel really great on the day. You know, you don't want to almost hold them back either because some days, sometimes those days are hard to come by where somebody actually does feel really good and you want them to just, you know, have fun and and let it rip. So, um, you know, it just comes down to the coach, the personal preference, um, but, but utilizing all of them. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, uh, it it is important to, I, I also find that that is a, a, fi- a fine balance that you need to find between you don't want to hold the athlete back. So in a lot of workouts, like I would note that don't let the numbers hold you back. If you feel good, then go for it. And particularly, this is the case in those very intense workouts. Like if it's a, a run on the track or if it's a, well, swims are all always basically that case. And uh, But those similar kinds of workouts, you, you just want to give the numbers as sort of a starting point but then the athlete needs to see and get in tune with their body and see what they have on the day and and if it's more than that then that's perfect but if it's less then they also need to to be able to to sense that and go with what they have on the day so if we tie it all together with the overview uh, for somebody who is training for let's say half and full distance races an age grouper uh, with uh, 10 to 15 hours per week to train like how would a typical trisado well typical i i take that back but can you give an example of just one a training week that uh, that you might give using the things that we've talked about so far sure so yeah 10 to 15 hours is very very much the good example the commonplace um we we like to say three swims a week should be you know i don't want to say the word mandatory but three at least three swims a week is is what you should always shoot for um, you know, one kind of heart rate swim, you know, where you're, uh, you know, that'd be, that'd be more of like your thresholds and, and such your endurance swim, your long swims, whether that be, you know, like I said, you know, 400s, 800s, thousands, 1500, whatever. Um, and then kind of your speed session, you know, where you're working on that top speed, because even for, for 70.3 and Ironman age group athletes, um, it's, it's just still good for, for that metabolic you know, to go hard. Um, and so three swims is, is great. We try to have every athlete doing that four swims, even better. It can even be a fourth recovery swim, but it's still volume. It still helps. Um, and that's generally how we, how we structure that on the bike. Again, you're, you're looking for, for an anaerobic day. We go hard 30 seconders, you know, one minutes hill reps, um, you, you know, a, a long ride day again. You, you what know, what would the recovery look like for something like that for the 30 seconds or, or one minute uh, efforts? How long recovery roughly would you take? Uh, I mean, it depends on the time of the year, but, but generally about one to one, you know, so like 30, 30 or one minute, one minute. Um, but as, as we're, as we're moving closer to race, race times, we might do more of like a two minute, one minute or one minute, 45 second um, kind of recovery. Hmm. So, and then in the off season, maybe it's one minute hard, two minutes easy. Um, you know, so that's the that's the huge scientific aspect of it is just almost playing around with the recovery time. Um, but you'll you'll find our athletes doing one minute intervals all year long. Yeah. Um, it just kind of it just kind of depends. So go on. In addition to that that session, what were the other ones? Yeah, like a long ride, and then you know, like your your tempo, your your tempo kind of kind of reps um and uh you know that's where you're getting in your we you know the classic mod medium mad the mmm session 
Um, that's, you know, it could be 15, 15, 15, 20, 20, 20. Big one is a 30, 30, 30. Um, so that's a progressive. You, you start at a moderate yeah. intensity and then you pick it up a bit in the next uh, interval. And then uh, the, the mad one is, uh, is it all out or? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's a good question. And, and that, that goes back to kind of using the data, you know. So actually how we, we like to phrase it is MM question mark. So moderate, medium, question mark. Question mark being how do you feel? You know, are you, are you tired? Can you stay at medium? If medium is all you have on that day, then make it moderate, medium, medium. Um, if you feel really great, then moderate, medium, mad. Um, but I think that's, you know, going back to the data and those athletes, they hit that mad segment. They've already worked eight hours that day and they just, they can't, they can't muster any more power out of their legs. And so mentally they're like, oh no, you know, I'm failing. I'm, you know, I'm tired. I can't hit the numbers. And so they check out while they could just tell themselves, yeah, I'm tired. I got nothing else, but I'm just going to stay at this medium intensity for the next 20 minutes. So then by the end, they have 40 minutes of, you know, really good intensity rather than 20 minutes of riding two minutes. They're mentally checked out. They fail. They ride home easy. Um, but at the end of the spectrum too, they ride medium. They're just toast. Sometimes it is better to just that last 20 minutes, just ride easy home. <laughs> you know, and this is, this is where the coaching aspect and, and it really just comes into teaching the athletes to listen to their bodies. I'd much rather them ride easy for 20 minutes come back tomorrow and smash out a run session yeah so uh, what would the the percentages of of ftp be roughly for for the moderate and the and the medium segments of, of a workout like that and again what sort of recoveries are we looking at between those yeah so let's say for that you know the let's say the 20 let's say 10 by one minute on one minute off mad there you know not really a, a wattage range you're just going mad for the duration of the effort um, very yeah. easy, moderate, let's say moderate, medium, mad, you know, the classic build session. Sometimes you'd say almost Ironman, half Ironman, let's say 40 K Olympic level pacing. Yeah. So what are you looking at? 75%, maybe 86%, you know, 98%. Um, but you know, if it is only a 10, 10, 10 build or a 20, 20, 20 build, some days they're, they're really on fire and maybe they're doing 78%, 90%, 104%. Um, so, uh, but, but generally, you know, we, we do like to keep it a little bit more aerobic on those, on those efforts. So you would probably never see me prescribing much around a hundred percent or more. And, and um, is that they, the builds follow each other immediately without any recovery between them or how does that work? Right. Correct. No recovery between. Okay. Them. Got it. So, um, so we had the, uh, the hard, uh, one minute or short, shorter intervals. And we have this build session and we have a, a long ride, uh, any, any other rides. And then also the question about the cadence again, where do you weave in that cadence training in, in these workouts? Yeah. For 10 to 15 hours, you know, maybe another ride again, it could be another, it could be a recovery bike. Um, you, you might be able to throw in another, um, maybe another tempo session or another anaerobic session, you, you know, just depending on where you're at in the year, what your goals are, what you're, what you're trying to accomplish. The cadence, um, yeah, generally for the, you know, that's a good question, you know, for the, the shorter intervals, that's when you'll see us in generally are like our biggest gear, 
you know, so those one minute efforts, that's where you're seeing the Instagram videos of the athletes like Daniela on the turbo riding at 40, 40 cadence for a, for one minute all out, um, or mad effort. Um, but then you get out on the, the, those mads and then you're looking more into the race cadence, you know? So then you're, you're, you're extending it out to into the seventies, you know, maybe the mad segment, if you're at like the Olympic, the 40 K pace, maybe you're in the eighties. Um, but so that one's a little bit more free. And then depending you know, for the long rides, a lot of times as well, we like to have our athletes keep, keep the cadence lower there even. And so you'll, you'll see some athletes where I want their average cadence for the whole four hour ride to be 70 or 75, because we're using it, you know, maybe as a strength component on some of the Hills. Um, but it also might be to just try and keep their heart rate low. Um, you know, in the scientific side of the sport, you know, let's talk about heart rate decoupling, you know, does it work? Is it, is it good to use, you know, I, I'm not going to pass judgment, but I think for keeping your cadence lower for a long ride, you'll see a difference in decoupling as less than if you're riding the first hour at 90 cadence, um, you know, even at the same power, but then over the course of a hot day, you know, and you try to keep the same cadence or your cadence, you know, as you fatigue naturally drops anyway, that it, you know, the heart rate might still go up and rise. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's really dependent, but you know, you'll probably never really see our athletes prescribed anything really over 80 or 85, unless it's a, you know, a specific athlete or, you know, it's needed to say, produce the effort. Mm, got it. And that long ride, is it uh, just uh, go out and get time in the saddle or do you include some sort of uh, intervals, maybe race intensity or things like that in the long ride? Yeah, you would, you would definitely see race specific stuff. You might see some, you know, some five minute strength stuff in there. So big gear segments within the long ride, you know, so nothing real anaerobic, but just working on that strength over the the duration of, of, a, you know, of getting up towards race distance or, um, or incorporating a long ride, but then incorporating a mad time trial at the end, you know, so finishing your ride with a 20 or a 30 minute, you know, let's, let's say mad, let's say medium to mad, maybe, maybe Ironman or half Ironman pace. And then if it's that time of the year, then after that, you would maybe hop off and go right into a, you know, a race pace brick. Um, but in terms of the bike training, I think, I think, I mean, we can cover that, you know, at a, at a different time, but in terms of the volume of rides that amateurs especially need, I, I feel like sometimes it's too much that, that they, that they stress about those long rides too heavily and, and they actually lose fitness because of it, you know, going back to the whole consistency of the training. Um, and so, you know, seeing an amateur do a six or an eight hour ride four, six, six weeks out from Kona, you look at what they probably did the couple days before that and what it's going to take in a couple days after that in terms of recovery. And it's like, you can almost see in like the training peaks, the performance manager chart, their, their fitness didn't really go up because they had to take so much time to recover from that one massive day of training. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so, so, so what about the, the run then uh, in this example week? What would the run look like? Yeah, runs, you know, the running is the nice part. You can run anywhere in the world. You can run anytime. 
you know, the day, any weather, especially if, and then if you have a treadmill to use as a tool. Um, so again, you'll generally have a, a quicker component of the week, you know, kind of following this, the same signs, you know, we, the, the Soto sports science, as he calls it, <laughs> um, you, you know, it's just, it, you might, yeah, you're going to have your, your 30 second intervals, 30 thirties, you're going to have one minutes, two minutes on a, on a, on a certain day you know, an, a, another day you might have the same kind of build workout or negative split workout, um, a long run and a brick, you know, so really you look at it three to four swims a week, three to four bikes, three to four runs, um, depending on the athlete with the running as well. Like I was saying, the more the consistency over duration is we'll start having our athletes do two runs in a day. You get up in the morning, you do some, some strength reps, some, some hill sprints of 15, 20 seconds. And then at lunch or in the evening, you know, you come back and you just do an easy, um, you know, an easy 20 or 30 minute jog. And so for that day, maybe you've gotten an hour and 15 minutes in, but it was spread over two runs, you know, a quality and then an, an easy like leg flush. Yeah. And that long run for, especially for, for Ironman athletes, I think it's, uh, it's always interesting to hear about how long people think that should be what's your take on that how how long long rides long runs should uh ironman uh, age groupers do sure yeah i um you know i i would say i never have an athlete do over two and a half to three hours at one setting the majority never over two and a half hours i just i feel you know especially when most athletes are preparing for ironmans it's in the late spring the summer time um let's say in the northern hemisphere europe or you know north america um and and so it's already so hot and they're already training so much and so their form and fatigue breaks down which of course it will happen on race day but we don't want to elicit that in in a heavy training week when then they might cause an injury and so i will build anywhere up to like two and a half hours, let's say in the morning or with a run group, if they do that. But then in the evening, um, again, family work dependent, come back with another half hour to say one hour in the, in the afternoon. And so total time on the day, they're maybe at three to three and a half hours, you know, for some of the bigger runs, Mm. but it's just not in that one specific setting you know, where I think maybe the last hour if somebody ran three to three and a half hours in one setting, it's like, you know, their form breaks down and, and, you know, also nutrition, hydration, trying to stay on top of that in one run session. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's generally my take on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, other things outside of swimming, biking and running like strength training and nutrition, What's uh, your take on on those things? What place do they play in the training and preparation for racing? And uh, yeah, any any particular things that that uh, age groupers can learn from how you do that? Yes, you know, strength training is is another component. It's it's very uh, you know, I would say it is very important. You just have to, it just depends on what it is. You know, you were saying the ten to fifteen training hour per week, amateur athlete who has two kids you know, works 40 hours a week, 35, 50 hours a week, you know, um, the broadband of spectrum. Uh, so many of these athletes, they're, they're, they're going to the gym three hours a week, let's say three by one hour sessions in the week. Um, you know, so let's take that down to now it's, it's 
eight to 11 hours of training. And so what they've done is they've, and a lot of times you'll see the, the swim take a hit in terms of the strength training. You know, they go to the gym three by one hours a week, but then they only swim once or twice for 40, hmm. 45 minutes. And so, and, and I know Brett gets a lot of flack for this in a couple of articles he's written about strength training and, but he, but he says it right, you know, with the big gear work we do, the hill reps, using the paddles, the pool buoys, the ankle band, or the parachute in swimming, you're getting very sports-specific strength training while you're working out, while you're doing the training. Um, and, and, and sure, um, you know, people will come back and say, well, that's not the, the accessory. You know, you're not working on the, the side-to-side movements you know, that, that, that kind of, you know, strength training, we won't, I won't dive into that. Um, but, uh, but it, it just, it's all about the time management and we, I have no problem. I prescribe athletes, um, a, a strength a program. Actually, you had, you had her on, on your show last, the other week, Aaron Carson, um, from Boulder, Colorado, who I got to know really well. You know, I think that kind of program is very solid and it is something you can do at home. You don't have to go to the gym to do, and, and it's very sport-specific. And so if an athlete has that time and it's not getting in the way of potential gains in the pool or it's not going to make them so that they're always so tired and they can't do the proper training, um, especially in the scope of, like let's say, the 12- to 16-week build before an Ironman, then you got to look at not using it so much. And what about uh, nutrition? Is that something that you incorporate a lot, like in how you prescribe training and or any other things that you want to talk about in terms of nutrition? Yeah, nutrition, I think, you know, the KISS principle, very, very good in terms of sports nutrition. Um, there's a lot of good nu- nutrition companies out there, but I think there's also, you know, a lot of a lot of stuff out there in the internet nowadays. It just makes it too complicated. I'm not going to say bad, but just complicated. Um you know, whether it be the fasting, the ketos diets, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, at the end of the day, your brain for over the course of nine plus hours of an Ironman, you know, you got to feed it because the blood's going everywhere else, which every which way else to keep your body, you know, alive. And so, you know, I, I find that nutrition is a huge key and I probably prescribe more calories in training or maybe Triceto does more calories in training and racing than you know maybe anywhere else but you know I, I still do think there's a there's there's a big place for doing morning workouts maybe in a fasted state you know because anywhere up to two hours or so your body generally has enough glycogen and and you know energy stores that's that's been that's been shown and you know most everybody will say that um you know doing but then you know you get the the stuff that people say where you know try subtle you get say you're two bottles of water for four or five hours in the bike and you're not allowed to stop and fill them up, (laughs) which again, it just comes down to, you know, not forcing your body to rely on it sometimes. And then, you know, making sure you do enough so that on a race day, you are ready for it. You're not trying something new. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, you need nutrition. I love food. I think every athlete should love food and not be afraid of it. Um, you know, eating your cheese and your ice cream. Daniela Reef loves cheese. Um, Nicola 
She, she's Swiss. She has to. <laughs> well, yeah, Nicola Spearing with the chocolate. You know, it's just well, that's, that's, same thing there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I think it, it comes down to the you know the world nowadays in the terms of the fitness. It's it, it's like you almost have to be scared of food because it's a negative connotation. Or if you know at Kona on the the Digny Beach, if if you don't have a ripped six pack. And you're not five percent body fat, then you're not a true, you know, a true athlete nowadays. And I think that just gets in people's heads sometimes and causes issues. Um, and you know, so even even telling athletes, hey, you need to put on one or two kilos, um, especially, you know, it, it's a touchy subject. But even with female athletes, it, you know, it's just like, hey, you you'd be stronger if you put on a kilo of of weight. Um, that's another good example. I'm going to keep using Daniela Reef, but she's so high profile. After her ITU career, Brett had her put on, I, I can't remember exactly the number, but he had her put on quite a, a, a few kilos to handle the demands of Ironman racing. I think it was the same with Maka when he tried to really hard to win Kona a couple of years and didn't do so. And then he he realized that he needed to put on a couple more kilos and and just get stronger and more resilient and and that's what he did and then he then he won Kona and, and yeah I agree with all of those things that you that you said what one thing that I want to to piggyback on is what you mentioned about sometimes going out on that four hour ride with with two bottles of water no refilling it I think well that's doing that sometimes and and also as you said going going and training fasted sometimes that those are all things like combining those with like fuel sessions that's what makes you flexible i think you mentioned that as well like metabolically flexible but a lot of the media hype these days is about like always doing the same thing and always avoiding sports nutrition and uh, eating a certain way avoiding certain foods that that equates to metabolic flexibility and, and that's just something that i find very very difficult and very confusing for most for most age groupers that that aren't really looking that critically at at any sort of of media or or articles that they read so what you mentioned there is much in my opinion much more of a metabolically flexible approach compared to what is often quoted as being a metabolic flexibility approach in in the media these days so so i wanted to highlight that a little bit yeah absolutely because then then you will have the days where it's you know, we're doing very race specific stuff and you're testing out that race nutrition. And, and I want all of my athletes at, at, you know, depending on, you know, male, female, at least one gram per kilogram body weight for a female of carbohydrate up to, I want pretty much every one of my males around 75 to 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour. Yeah. I mean, that that is just overloading your body. You know, I mean, a typical... Uh, gel has what 23 grams in 100 calories um, so you know you're looking at 300 plus calories at least an hour that I want my athletes hitting every single hour so you know if they have breakfast you know I might let them skirt by in the first hour you know thinking that that's the swim um, but uh, like I don't want this you ride two or three hours and then start your nutrition because you got to lose some you know lose some weight now I want you hitting 300 calories an hour immediately um you know food or energy drink and yeah. so yeah there's those there's those days too which are absolutely important and that's such a big mis misnomer as well that 
the 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 time that you lose weight is when you no, don't take your nutrition on the bike. That's going right into your bloodstream and not getting stored <laughs> anywhere anyway. But let's not right. not turn this into a nutrition podcast. I want to uh, dive a little bit deeper into some. Uh, uh, common age group mistakes and how to avoid them. What, what are some common mistakes that you that you see? You mentioned a few of them, but feel free to repeat them briefly briefly here to to round it up for us. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a big one is is the whole stress of volume in, in training, and people stress that oh, I only got ten hours in this week when I'm you know I can easily do fifteen. You know, the volume is it, it is important you know, especially time duration curve of finishing an Ironman to a certain extent. But, but as long as you're consistent with the training, I think three, let's say 12 to 16 week training block that is more consistent than having four weeks in there where you do some massive Saturday swim, bike, run brick and have to take a bunch of days off after that, you know, you might have the same volume, but I don't think the gain you're getting is the same. Um, so, you know, just strength, just really stressing the consistency of if you can day after day, after day, after day, getting stuff in, um, you know, I just to highlight back on the accessory training, you know, strength training is good, very valuable, but in the scope of your time availability, you know, what is more important? Is it getting in two extra swims a week so that you can hit your three or four, or is it going to the gym three by one hour time, you know, a week, what's, what's it, what's going to, you know, give you more bang for your buck on the race course. Um, you know, not enough swimming just uh, again, I think you, you need to take those three principles, you know, go to the pool, get into the pool and enjoy the training any way possible with that means you're always swimming with a pool buoy, which is very common in, in triceto, you know, paddles and pool buoy, you know, because people put the pool buoy in, and, and they all of a sudden they just love swimming and they can do it and they get there. They, they you know, they put in the repetition. So those three things, very important for the athlete. Uh, nutrition. We just talked, we just talked on that and, you know, just making sure you're getting in enough, especially on the bike. Um, and then not over biking. There's, there's a lot of courses out there nowadays, you know, in, in the hot environments or, you know, hillier environments and, Athletes get this in into their brain that they have to hit that 70% of threshold power or up to elite amateurs to pros, you know, the 80% for an Ironman, let's say 85 to 88% of a half. And, it, it, you know, on certain days, the body just might not be there. And so, you know, that's where it comes down to somewhat forgetting the numbers and not stressing if you're if your watts are 10 watts, 15 watts low over the course of the bike segment, because that might save you 30 minutes in the run. Um, and, and just being patient, you know, have the, have the courage to have patience and to start slow. One thing that you mentioned in our email conversation, which uh, piqued my interest was, uh, what the, the notion of what you think you do versus what you really do. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a, that's a hodgepodge and, um, you know, I think it comes down to, you know, you need to, in the overall overview of, again, this podcast is, you know, you have to train for triathlon, which is three components into one, but, you know, so many people, they, they want to buy the, the bike training program from, you know, Joel Friel, they want to, 
or you know any cycling coach they want to buy the the running program that um, the Olympic marathoners are using. And then they want all the workouts that Katie Ledecky or Michael Phelps are doing in the pool. And then they try to combine those into, into one training. And they just realize that it's not, you know, it, it, it's not in, in, you know, altogether, it's not going towards one ultimate goal, I feel. Um, and so you just need to, um, you know, you just look at what you do and you need to make sure that that swim, you know, is you, that is going to affect tomorrow, the rest of the day today and what you did yesterday. Um, you know, what you did yesterday or today is just as important as yesterday and tomorrow. And you have to make sure that they all jive together. And, you know, I feel like that's, that's what we've done, you know, really well, or Brett Sutton has done really well over 40 years coming from coaching numerous Olympic medalists in swimming, um, before he came to triathlon and you know it's just like you know really really take a look at what you're doing with your training and ask yourself if that's going to help me get to from point a to point b the quickest on race day yeah that's pretty impressive actually a interesting piece uh, piece of trivia that uh, i'm sure that he coached swimming very differently when he coached those uh, swimmers going for the olympics versus the triathletes that are going for olympic gold like Nicholas Pirig or, or the, the the Ironman World Championships like like Daniela, so that's uh, it. Uh, it shows that it's yeah, it's not uh, it's not three different sports. It's it's one sport, right? No, yeah. I mean that's that's a good point, and you know I'm I'm not Brett Sutton. I'll you know I'm I'm not not trying to piggyback on all his stuff, and so I I can't speak for it all. But but that's exactly I think I, I touched on it earlier. He's done this for forty years. He's, he's tried out, you know, different things in swimming and biking and running. I mean, he was a professional boxer. I mean, when he was younger, I mean, it's just, he's, he's been around so many different sports and kind of pod just all into one big pile. You know, the same thing when it came to the bike with a low cadence, you know, he's, he said, he's talked to Graham O'Brien and Eddie Merckx. And he said, one of the best things he ever learned from Eddie Merckx is he asked, Hey, how do you save so much energy and win the, you know, how can, how can somebody win the, win the tour? How do you win the tour? And Eddie Merckx, I guess, told him by pedaling the less, the least amount, you know, you save the most energy. That's who wins, you know, just like an Ironman, whoever slows down the most wins. And so he said what he, you know, even in cycling, what he would do is he would pedal three strokes or yeah, three strokes hard and then one stroke easy. Like if he's riding in the, in the Peloton just to, to keep the speed up but he would take off as much energy as he could when he when he could um and so that that led you know brett to believe well why why not push fewer rpms per ironman bike leg and save more energy in your legs you know is there any scientific research to support that you know there is some but it just comes down to what's worked for 20 years yeah it's it's important to to definitely bring in the experience and what is working it's it's not as everything should be based on on uh, on scientific studies because then we would be way behind where we actually are because practitioners always come before we can we can find any any proof or evidence of why things are working that's just the way the world works in all, yeah. all different areas so but that's yeah, that, that's actually a good yeah. uh, a good segue into uh, there are a lot of coaches listening to this podcast so can you tell us a little bit about the the tri sado uh, certification and uh, and how you found it and why you decided to 
to go through it and how it's been working for you afterwards like what what's that like yeah no it's it's been you know really solid i i got a sports uh, master's in sports science in the usa um where, where i was living and i moved to boulder colorado and lived there for uh five years i worked for a professional cycling company um out there uh you know coming from swimming i, I was always interested in triathlon but really didn't dive into it for for, for the first couple years um, and then I got in, uh, ended up coaching a, an Australian uh, pro, Leon Griffin. Um, and yeah, we had some success. And, you know, just, just going through that, picking up some age groupers, I really started to enjoy the, the sport of triathlon more so than cycling. Um, I, I met my fiance out in, in Boulder, um, who was getting a degree in engineering. And she was actually then um, offered a job in Germany here, uh, with SRAM bicycle components. Um, and so three years ago we moved to Germany and I've lived here, um, ever since. And, um, just got, you know, I've always followed Brett's blogs and stuff cause I was interested and just kind of got in touch with them. And that was the pathway, um, uh, that they came up with the certification process. And it's, it, you know, it's really neat. Um, you know, the coursework that he and Rob Pickard, who was high performance director in Australia, um, with, I think, I think he mentored Brett or they worked together at, at Australian triathlon and he kind of wrote the syllabus. Um, and so you go through a, a syllabus, the certification, and then I think the ultimate thing that is way better than any, you know, NGB certification or anything in the world that you can do is you have to spend two weeks with on deck with Brett. At, at a training camp, whether that be in St. Moritz, Cyprus, Gran Canaria, Mexico, you know, you know, wherever he is, just spending every day right beside him, getting the masterclass sessions of watching him interact with his athletes and the age groupers. Um, and, and yeah, it, you know, I find it, I find it just great. Um, you know, as we've talked about, I'm into data and, you know, I, every coach is their own, it, you know, you can't, you can't moonlight off of, you know, Brett's results, so to speak, you know, you can say the tricetal methods, that's what we do, the tricetal methodologies and, and such, the results speak for themselves, I think both at the professional and the age group level. Um, but yeah, I think it's just, it's absolutely essential. And it's, you know, to have spent that much time with Brett on deck. And he's so open. I mean, you can, you can send an email to the guy and he'll get back to you and and answer questions on, on training or, you know, a lot of his blogs are stemmed from, from questions that amateurs around the world sent him like, Oh, why did, you know, why did Daniela do this? Or why did she race Frankfurt? Or why isn't she racing the world championships? Um, you know, so I think that's, that's just so invaluable to that certification. What's one thing that you learned uh, on deck with Brett that, uh, that you find found particularly valuable that, uh, that we haven't talked about so far in this interview? Oh, oh man, there's, there's, there is so many. Um, I, I think it's just the persona of, of the coach on deck. You have to command a presence, but I feel there's so many coaches out there that, you know, maybe they, they, they probably didn't start a triathlon because triathlon such a, you know, young sport to the masses. Um, and I think there's so many coaches that came out and they're, they're too authoritative in their, in their coaching methodologies um, and you know, it's almost like American football coaches, you know, that you just get that rah, rah, rah in, in, on the field. And I think that the biggest thing I've noticed 
is for many athletes, like, like we were saying, coming from very successful careers and, and such, they check out immediately as soon as you start doing things like that. And, and so just learning the persona, I think, of an on-deck coach with that success is just knowing how little you have to talk while you're coaching somebody. Um, you know, it, he, he, he likes to quote, you know, knowing what to say and when to say it. You know, so that might mean he might say two words to, to Nicola the whole practice and then she gets out and walks away. There's no jibber jabber. There's no, how are you doing? There's, there's none of this. It's just, you say what needs to be said and that's it. I think John Wooden, the, the basketball coach that is very highly um, regarded as a coach, he was the same way. He would say only what was needed and nothing more. Right. Let's now move into the rapid fire questions. And uh, these are rapid fire, so 15 seconds or less, one sentence uh, usually. So the first one is What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon or endurance sports? Oh, oh there's, I'm, I'm such a geek. So, you know, I love Google Scholar and all the, <laughs> the science journals out there. And, you know, obviously I see blogs from fellow coaches and stuff come out, come out and I like to read those and just get a, you know, big, rounded viewpoint of all things that are going on in the sport what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment uh i would say a pull buoy or um a good travel case for flying in airlines that that allows you to break your bike down and not be charged the the ungodly air airline fees and who's somebody in triathlon that you look up to yeah i mean clearly brett sutton um but there's also a few other coaches you know one noticeably that i like to follow is dan Lorang um from from germany frodo's coach because he also came from or he's also working in the in the pro cycling aspect of the sport so it's it's always nice to follow him brilliant and finally for listeners that may be interested in in your coaching services where can they find you and uh, connect with you yeah, yeah, I'm 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 all over uh, social medias. I mean, just just my normal name. Um, Try set a website. Uh, my actual coaching business is TordenMultisport.com, um, which 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 we can link. But but yeah, I mean, I work, you know, with with athletes all over the world, and you know, I have professionals all the way to amateurs trying to complete five Ks. Brilliant. Yeah, we'll definitely have have everything linked to in in the show notes so that. Uh, listeners can find you all right carson thank you so much for coming on and and sharing all of all of this information it has been very interesting to to listen i really enjoyed it so thanks yeah thank you a lot for having me on Miko. really hope that you enjoyed that interview i certainly did enjoy uh, learning a lot of new things from about the trisada way of training and hearing carson's take on several different topics a couple of key takeaways for from my perspective. First, you're training for triathlon. You're not training. You're not combining swim, bike, and run programs. So definitely keep that in mind at all times. What this means in practice is uh, is of course going to differ a bit depending on what type of athlete you are, what race you are training for. But listen back to the interview to get some specific examples. I was thinking about highlighting some examples, but uh, then again, I don't want to make to to mistakenly give the impression that those examples are my key takeaways from the episode, but rather the big concept of training for triathlon, not training for swimming, biking, and running. And the second one 
it's consistency. You know it that uh, it's it's always going to come up time and time again because it is the most important thing. And uh, but I want to put a bit of a different spin on this. So we also talked about what you think that you're doing versus what you're actually doing, and this is something that I see a lot of athletes that actually think that they are consistent, but when in actual fact they probably aren't as consistent as they think. So the way that you can test this is on a monthly basis, go back and look at how many training sessions did you miss, how many training days did you miss. And for the majority of athletes, the number of course varies, but it's in the category just too many. And uh, too many, of course, from the perspective of uh, optimal athletic development. And there are things, of course, life will happen, but uh, the best age group triathletes are also the best ones at managing their time, at planning effectively, and that's how you can get that consistency. Uh, It's uh, try not to make excuses, try to instead find solutions. So as usual, you can find the show notes for this episode on thattriathlonshow.com, or you can click the link right down in the episode description. Any questions or comments, uh, go ahead and comment there. I'm sure that Carson can uh, pipe in and give answers to some questions if you have uh, more specific questions for him about the Trisado way of training. And in the next episode, we'll talk about foam rolling with Professor David Bame. He has done a ton of research on foam rolling, so this is all going to be evidence, the do's, the don'ts, when is foam rolling useful, when is it not, what sort of foam roller or alternatives should you be using, etc. So definitely, definitely tune in for that next week. In the meantime, if you're a long-time listener and you've been enjoying the podcast, I would be so, so happy if you could take a moment out of your day to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It really means a ton, and that's how I can spread it to more listeners. More listeners can find it through iTunes and other apps, and that helps me keep the show going. So please take a moment to rate and review the podcast if you haven't already, and if you're a long-time listener. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. That's R-O-K-A dot com. Check out all of their wetsuits, apparel, sunglasses, and remember the promo code, that triathlon show, all one word, all caps, for a brilliant 20% off your entire order. This is the brand that is trusted by athletes like Javier Gomez, Gwen Jorgensen, Flora Duffy, Mario Mola, Lucy Charles, and many, many others, both in triathlon and in other sports like cycling and running, all sorts of different sports across the board. And big thanks to Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Remember, when you go and uh, buy those electrolytes, you should first, if you haven't already, take their free online sweat test to find out how much sodium you lose in your sweat. This test is a quick online quiz that you can take in a few minutes in front of your computer. It's linked to in the episode description and on the show notes page. So it will be a very, very fast thing for you to do. And then you can use the promo code TTS20, that's TTS20, that is only valid in August. And that will give you 20% off your entire order of individualized for you electrolytes. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.